Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD Deutschland ist eine Perle der deutschen Industrie. Und ich glaube, das kann man nicht. Ich weiß, wie viel Liebe dahinter steht. Wenn Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn Wachstum. Spargelweltmeister ist China, denn die bauen sich. Hi, this is Michelle. Welcome back to Spaßbremse. Hey, this is Ted. We've got a great episode for you with a couple of Spaßbremse firsts. We are in the midst of our series on reunification, but parts two and three will come out next Friday and the following Friday. This week, we wanted to respond to some current events happening in Germany, namely the climate crisis and the deadly flooding that took place in Western Germany a few weeks ago. Right. And so we have our first guest this week, the Jacobin Germany journalist Alex Brentler, who breaks down the history of the climate movement in Germany and explains the current political moment. He's super knowledgeable and it's a great conversation that really puts a lot of the current debate into context. And after we hear from Alex, we have another Spaß Bremse first, which is a reading series. And this is a very insane article and it's going to be a lot of fun to break it down. So look forward to that. And for now, all right, on to the interview with Alex. I am joined here on Spaßbremse with our guest, Alex Brentler, who, congratulations, you are actually our, our first guest of the podcast, so big honor there. Um, Alex is a writer for Jacobin Germany, recently wrote this, uh, this great piece about climate action um, in the context of the recent floods. Alex, could you just kind of go over the piece and your motivation for, for writing it just at, at a kind of a high level, then we can get into some of the details. Yeah. Uh, hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. I mean, I, I wrote this piece. It's, it's an adapted version of a piece that I wrote for uh, German, the German language issue of Jacobin. And I, I wanted to talk a little bit of, about the immediate political response to these horrific floods, but also situated a little bit in the broader context of climate politics and environmental politics in Germany. I think there, uh, as in other areas, I think you've, you've talked about this before on, on your show, there's some misconceptions, um, particularly in the English-speaking world um, when it comes to just environmental politics in Germany uh, and particularly the climate issue. Obviously, I mean, it's, it's horrific what's been happening here. You know, 170 people confirmed fatalities. And then on top of that, a lot of people are still missing, you know, like floods on a scale that previously just had been unthinkable. It's not even a 100-year flood. It's not even a 500-year flood. It's just totally outside of the scale of anything what what people had expected or planned for. It's now since since I published a piece, it's come out that actually there was um, there were warnings from the meteorological services that were ignored. So potentially some human life could have been spared if people had been given adequate warning. Yeah, so there's there are shortcomings on that side as well. That's sort of the lesson of this, right? Is it's it's almost a catastrophe in a very multifaceted way. You also point to. Um, yeah, this idea that Germany has a very green reputation. And part of the reason for Germany's green reputation, I think a lot of it dates back to the 60s and 70s and the early environmental movement, which was, you know, a, a real leader at the time and, and has some has some accomplishments that you can be proud of. 
could you tell us a little bit about the history of that and how some of the early promise of that movement didn't quite lead to the decarbonized future or the decarbonized present you'd hope for now and and how we got to where we are today in terms of Germany actually going from a leader in environment to to a real laggard and still having one of the highest rates of coal production in Europe. I think you you have to go back to understand the whole history of this, I would say, to the early 50s when Germany was reconstituted as a you know, state, West Germany, uh, which was still um, formally occupied by, by the three occupying powers, um, France, Great Britain, and the United States. Of course, um, socialist East Germany went, went its own way, but it, it was reconstituted as a state with, you know, limited sovereignty. I mean, there was quite substantial sovereignty pretty much from the get-go. Um, where domestic matters were concerned, but one area that there was some some controversy uh, was the idea whether um, West Germany should rearm, whether it should build up its its own military again. And uh, in the beginning, it was it was far from clear that that would happen. But that was a project that um, the first uh, Chancellor of West Germany, Konrad Adenauer, who was of the CDU of the Conservative Party that you know, to this day is kind of like the, the default governing party. That was really a project he pushed quite strongly. And in particular, a, a guy named uh, Franz Josef Strauss became defense minister before becoming... So Germany rearmed in 1955. Uh, so the armed forces were established just a few years after the Federal Republic was, was founded. And actually, before he became... Minister of Defense, he had been Minister of Nuclear Affairs. And it was actually the official stated policy of the government back then that uh, Germany should also uh, acquire nuclear weapons. So you can see that, generally speaking, the left was either openly against this or at least very skeptical of the idea of Germany rearming. Um, there were, as were in other um sectors of the state, particularly the police and other security uh, functions. There were a lot of just former members of the Wehrmacht, former members of the Nazi party and so forth. And it was um, considered a right-wing project pretty much from the get-go. And this, so this guy who became first minister for nuclear affairs and defense minister openly advocated for the nuclear rearmament of Germany alongside conventional rearmament. He was a right-wing firebrand. He was just hated by the left. And the whole project of um, nuclear energy and nuclear rearmament was really considered to be, you know, one package, part and parcel, so to speak. And it became associated with a right-wing authoritarian, soft revanchist agenda, basically. And this really um, then uh, came to a head in the 60s and 70s with the boom of the anti-nuclear movement in Germany. Um, there were huge protests against the construction of nuclear power plants, particularly towards the late 70s and, and, and into the 80s. And they were repressed extremely harshly by the state. So I think that is one important aspect of the political history of environmentalism in Germany. So it, it for 
for these types of reasons, it has a particularly strong anti-nuclear bent to the extent that really, you know, up until the early 2000s, climate change was really more of an afterthought. It was really energy politics were the politics around nuclear energy to a large extent. Right. And so this this ties in quite closely with the history of the Green Party itself, which for for some periods um, in this election cycle has topped the polls. Now they look like they're they're a bit behind the CDU, but but still likely to be one of the governing parties. And so their their birth in the latter half of the 20th century is very closely tied with this anti-nuclear movement, right? Right, that's correct. So I think the other strain, um, intellectually speaking, that's important is the particular character of the German left sort of in, in, in the 60s and 70s, uh, post-68, and, and from then on, like in, in all Western countries, there was a student movement, there was a new left, and so forth. But I think the particular expression that that took in Germany was very strongly influenced, perhaps to a greater extent than in other places, though I'm by no means an expert on that, by, by the Frankfurt School. And I think there was a reading on sort of the situation of the working classes and of the alienation produced in consumer societies. Yeah, that, that took particular precedence. So the, the environmental politics of the time were also very strongly influenced by this anti-consumerism that came out of the Frankfurt School and other similar intellectual currents of the time. So I think it's no accident that the Green Party, when it started in the early 1980s, was very heavily influenced by these sorts of ideas. I mean, the Green Party started as a very uh, heterogeneous movement. They still are to some extent to this day, although I think it's arguable that for the first time they, they are really forming something like a coherent mass party uh, with a with a mass membership base and that explains some of their electoral strength but you can see that i mean mean, there were you know there were all sorts of people in the green parties from the beginning there were sort of you know just straight up kind of anti-modernist conservative catholics alongside you know just maoists and any other type of ideology in between basically over time you get this particular ideology that that forms around a green party which which is an environmentalism that's pretty all-encompassing but with a particular focus on uh, nuclear energy that is that is perhaps not so prominent in other western countries right and so with the green party itself just before we move on to the the sort of the closing down of of, of a lot of nuclear power plants in germany but there were strains that were in the past what you could credibly call like eco-socialist right and that's that's moved now to where there are still some of those elements um but the real leadership of the party that you would potentially find governing if, if they were to go into government would be the the realos the uh the the realists right um yeah although i mean it's i would say it's here terminology gets really tricky i mean i, I would say that today these terms are pretty meaningless whether you call yourself a realo today has more to to do kind of which party branch you you come from and who your mentors are or what's called eco-socialism today in in the anglosphere there were always strains of that but i mean it was never really 
um, spelled out as a coherent ideological project by either one of those two factions. It it gets a bit tricky. Like it, it it's hard to you know like people mean different things when they call themselves eco-socialists today. But similar types of ideas were around in the in the eighties and nineties in the Greens. But you, yeah, the the the, the specifics of comparison get get tricky. Sure. Yeah, I just mean that. In terms of an environmental program that would take issue with with capitalism itself as part of an ecological transition, mm-hmm. now the Green Party has moved fairly decisively to a project of greening German capitalism. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Yeah, that that doesn't in turn mean that they're particularly enthusiastic capitalists or sort of like very economically liberally minded, but they are firmly within the camp of. Um, reforming capitalism rather than overcoming it. I think that's totally fair to say. Right. And in terms of the this these anti-nuclear strains on the German left that you talk about, um, how did that actually materialize and how did that achieve success in some of its ways and, and phasing in a lot of renewables, but that not those two combined not really lead to reductions in carbon emissions at the scale you would have hoped for by now? And um, People have probably seen this really ubiquitous sticker that's been around since the 70s with the smiling sun. It says, Atomkraft, nein danke. And so they have this translated in a bunch of different languages, but atomic energy, no thanks. Um, and you see those on bags in Berlin today and stickers everywhere. And so there's, you know, you, there's still this anti-nuclear strain, even, even as it's, there's been more and more arguments that it's a bit problematic with regard to carbon reduction. So how did the tension between nuclear reduction and the growth of sustainables, how did those come into conflict and how did that get us where we are today? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, as this, I think this dovetails into what you've talked about in previous episodes. So, uh, in, in 1998, the Greens and the SPD, uh, took over the government from, from the conservatives. And this was a government that was sort of in the same tradition of of the third way projects of Clinton and Blair and so it was neoliberally minded there were cutbacks to social programs and so forth labor market reforms you've you've done a uh, excellent episode on that already so i won't reiterate that but sort of one of the few positive projects were really this government tried to you know um implement some policy that would be more than just a retrenchment that would advance society in in some way directly was um, the promotion of renewable energy. Now, the way in which they did it is, I would say, as problematic as the fact that it was done primarily with the aim of reducing and eventually phasing out nuclear power um, in mind. So, as I've already alluded to, um, I mean, people were aware of climate change. You know, you had like the Kyoto conference and so forth. So, this this was definitely a topic on uh, people's minds. But even when, when my parents were talking to me as a kid, you know, it, they, they talked a lot about nuclear power. They also talked about climate change, but it was something that, you know, they said, oh, it's going to seriously affect the world and in a couple of hundred years. It's not really going to... Um, do anything substantial within your lifetime and you, you might notice the temperature rise a little bit 
whereas they were very worried about the nuclear power plant um, that wasn't too far away. And it seemed like the more immediate risk. And now you've kind of had the crisis yeah, exactly. discourse, like invert, that, nucle- that what to do with nuclear waste seems less of an issue than the exactly. planet heating. Yeah, exactly. So the way it was implemented was very much also in this um, neoliberal spirit of governance. So what was understood back then is that Renewable energy was a technology that was really not um, market ready and that needed some state support and some form of guaranteed revenue stream for R&D, but also commercialization deployment that would sort of make it into a serious option for energy production for the world. Now, the way this was done was uh, in in 2000, they passed a first version of the Renewable Energies Act, which has since been amended and changed many times. But the basic structure was you could basically uh, start producing renewable energy and you were guaranteed a feed-in tariff. So if you put solar panels on your house or if you put up a wind turbine somewhere uh, at, at the time, they were still quite small. So, you know, a couple of private investors could get together and put one up. Um, you were guaranteed a price of electricity for 20 years and the um, network provider had to buy it off you and had to buy and had to pay this, this guaranteed price. And this was financed by a surcharge that was put on electricity. Now, in the beginning, this was quite low. It wasn't really seriously notable in people's uh, electricity bills. Um, but of course, over time, as you know, as more and more renewable energy was deployed at these quite generous subsidies as they were at the time, this became more and more noticeable and started to have a, a noticeable effect on the price of electricity. And particularly for um, for large industrial consumers of electricity. So Germany has a quite developed uh, chemical industry that uses huge amounts of um, electricity, but also, you know, aluminum smelters, electric steel furnaces, the railways, stuff like that. And uh, it became a sort of an issue for competitiveness um, for these uh, heavy users of, of electricity. And they, uh, the government reformed the system and made them exempt, meaning that um, the cost burden was completely shifted onto private households. Now, this is problematic in and of itself, but also because uh, by choosing to fund this from an electricity surcharge rather than from general taxation, you make this a very regressive um, way of financing the energy transition. So, uh, you know, like if you would fund it from progressive in- income taxes, then of course, you know, it's the upper classes who would pay for it, but working class people and low income people pay a higher share of their income for electricity just because it's one of the basic services that everybody uses. You use more electricity as you get richer, but not necessarily to the same extent as your income rises. So there's there's a certain base usage that pretty much everybody has. Everybody has a fridge. You know, poor people have an older fridge, which uses usually more electricity and so forth. So this is really uh, one of the basic goods like food, like water that everybody consumes and everybody needs. And if you raise the price of these basic goods, 
instead of choosing to finance something from general taxation, it has a regressive effect. And it's, um, you know, particularly uh, because these small scale producers of renewable energy, you know, homeowner, homeowners who could afford to put solar panels on their roofs and so forth. And this, you know, newly emergent class of small scale green energy investors, those usually were people who were quite well off. So it was really a form of upward redistribution as well. And that's really highly problematic and, and created a pretty toxic political legacy for, for climate politics in Germany. Yeah. In addition to the, obviously, the, the issues of fairness with doing this, it creates, yeah, like you said, politically toxic. And, and I think that has really stained any efforts at a green transition to this day where people assume this is a project of the rich, this is going to screw me over, um, and, and view these more fossil fuel intensive, staying with these fossil fuel intensive methods as more egalitarian, even though in the long run, it's going to be primarily the working classes that bear the brunt of the actual effects of climate change. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I will say that, um, I mean, there was a decent amount of working class support for these policies, despite the fact that they had this regressive impact. Um, because, um, as you pointed out in your episode on Hartz IV, this was a time when there was still substantial unemployment in Germany. The, the job market was quite dire. And there were, as a consequence of these policies, you know, new industries created and the renewable energy industry really became a substantial source of new employment in Germany on the order of um, 100,000 new jobs and more. And in, in, in regions, particularly in the East, that needed it quite badly. So it wasn't like there was, there were no successes were that, that you could point to, to get, oh, the support of the working class for these policies. Um, however, so Angela Merkel first became chancellor in 2005. She was governing with the social democrats at the time. But in 2009, she uh, achieved a majority together with the FDP, so the Liberal Party, which isn't, I mean, it is and it isn't liberal in the American sense. Um, you can maybe think of it like if you take the worst elements of the Democratic Party, then you get the FDP. Um, now, they uh, really, you know, they, they were confronted on the one hand with rising costs with a rising price of electricity for consumers. Um, but they were also just hostile to this whole project in general because it, they were, this is really an, an instance of classic industrial policy. Like you, you take some money and you promote an industry, you build up favorable, favorable conditions. As socialists, we pr would prefer that that happens through direct state involvement and direct investment at least by state banks and so forth so that you know really the state and society can take its fair share and it can be um, publicly directed and democratically directed that this wasn't the case for the energy transition under red green but at least it was a form of industrial policy so they were opposed to it as such and they were also particularly uh, opposed to it because this new class of green capitalists was really sort of seen as an imposter on the old um, German capitalist class. It was po politically affiliated with the Greens. It started to become a donor base for the Greens. So they were pretty hostile to it in the first place. 
I mean, I think it's fair to say that they didn't want to sort of stomp it out completely. Um, I think Angela Merkel has always been someone who is aware of the challenges of climate change without necessarily being willing to do much about it. So the way in which they cut these subsidy programs, um, it was always understood that eventually they would be phased out and eventually these technologies would be competitive, as indeed today renewable energy is quite cost competitive in many parts of the world and is an economically attractive option to supply at least part of your electricity demand. But in, in the period of following 2009, when they did these cuts, that wasn't yet the case. And basically this nascent industry that was on the verge of reaching competitiveness was just, you know, they pulled the plug on it completely and hundreds of thousands of jobs in the solar and wind industry were lost and uh, moved overseas. People, um, companies moved their production overseas, but increasingly also the R&D. So Germany even, even lost you know, know-how and, and so forth. And it really became uh, on top of the already, let's say, limited popularity of the working class due to these electricity surcharges. It became really a, a synonym for a failed project of industrial policy that, that failed at, at long-term, you know, secure job generation. What's so true really on... Squandering, yeah. like squandering all of this capital, both political, physical, and intellectual. Exactly. Daniela Gabor talks a lot about this. Exactly, yeah. With the context of the, the Green Deal, of rather than stepping in and doing public projects that would be, you know, probably unionized, very good wage jobs in this public sense of you just sort of backstop and de-risk private investment, which, as we talked about, creates these political liabilities in terms of the quality of the job, in terms of democratic oversight, and so on. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also pretty telling um, if you consider sort of where we've made progress in fighting the climate crisis and where we haven't. The area where it's pretty undeniable that there's been the most progress is the um, is the area of renewable energy and solar PV in particular. Um, the costs have gone pretty, come down pretty dramatically. And I think, you know, like the Greens and, and the policy of the red-green government at a time does deserve some praise because, you know, they, they provided some of these, these, um, startup funds. Um, but I think it's telling that that is the area that's most similar to consumer electronics and that consumer electronics are one of the few things that neoliberalism is really good at innovation and investment. Neoliberalism in general is terrible at innovation and investment, and we need a lot more of it to fight the climate crisis. Um, but the few areas where neoliberalism has kind of managed with enormous state support, you know, as Mariano Mazzucato likes to point out, all of the key technologies in, in, in your iPhone were developed, yes, in Silicon Valley to some extent, but with DARPA funding from the US government, you know, this wasn't a the private sector is just structurally incapable of taking the, these types of risks. Buying a solar PV panel is, is more or less the same as buying a consumer electronic product. You know, they're made on assembly lines. It's a similar type of um, product. But I mean, we know that climate change is, is a much more complex problem than that. Like there's there's many more areas of challenge, you know, agriculture, industrial processes, 
where we really haven't made a lot of technological progress, if any at all. And that takes a different type of state involvement and different types of innovation and, and investment that really neoliberalism so far has been proven to be pretty much incapable of. Right. And so I guess we can transition from there into the actual political prospects of this, of, of getting that type of state-led innovation that, that you talk about and that we need to avoid the worst of the, the climate catastrophe. So Armin Laschet, who's the the chancellor candidate of the CDU, the the man in line to, to succeed in Miracle. He, in addition to being the the head of Nordrhein-Westfalen, the most populous state in Germany, he's been in the news lately uh, for his rather tone-deaf reaction to this flooding. Um, in addition to, to talking down to a female journalist and saying, you know, now's not the time to, to change policy. Uh, he was caught on tape laughing um, at a speech that Steinmeier, the, the president of Germany, was giving about the catastrophe. And so that kind of brings up two questions. One, like, what are the parties who have the best chance of being in government? You know, that probably being the, the three biggest parties being the CDU, the Greens and the SPD. What are they proposing? Are there alternatives there? And do you see this really affecting Laschet very much and maybe increasing the chances of a more left-wing government? Yeah, I mean, I, I said in the article that I don't expect there to be much effect on the outcome of the election. And so far, the polls have borne that out. There's maybe been, you know, one or two percent movements against Laschet. I think his personal favorability ratings have collapsed a little bit more, but they're not necessarily all that meaningful in a context that is still, you know, we have where voting is still pretty party political and, and that where we have proportional representation. So people generally vote based on their party preference. And to some extent, then on top of that, uh, according to their preference for, for the candidate. Right. But in just to, to clarify for anyone that's not super familiar with the German system, like people are not actually in most cases, not ticking a box for like Amin Laschet or Olaf Scholz or so on. Like it's not, yeah, it's not like you the US to... where there's a direct election for the president. It goes through the Bundestag and then yeah, the Unless you happen elected. to live in the district where he is Exactly. Running. So there's so, one, yeah. one area that's voting for him or not. Yeah. Um, so I think, I mean, he's, you know, he's shrugged this off more or less, so to say. Um, and um, I think... There's a kind of double talk going on where on paper, the CDU's climate commitments, if you stack them up internationally, aren't terrible. You know, they say we want net zero by 2045. And he loves this, you know, this one um, line where he says, you know, Germany's contributions to CO2 emissions globally is only 2%, which of course is true. But it ignores other factors such as, you know, like as one of the wealthiest countries in the world with, with heavy industrial production of high value goods. There's a lot of emerging economies that, you know, take clues from Germany when it comes to, you know, um, climate protection. And we really have a chance to, as we did with renewable energy, um, try trial new technologies here. So if you redouble climate efforts in Germany, it really has the potential to speed up the transition worldwide. And it's also just a lot of developing countries, they are feeling the effects of climate change very acutely. Like 
India is very worried about what's going to happen to the monsoon. Um, China has had these horrific floodings. They've had impact on their, on their food supply, both domestically and in terms of what they import from Indonesia. So climate change is very much on, on these countries' minds. It's just this conservative propaganda lie that somehow, you know, Chinese and, and Indian people don't care about climate change, which is very prevalent in Germany. And it's completely not true. But, you know, he loves this 2% line and his actions really speak louder than his words, I would say. He is, he's a big defender of coal. I mean, we have what's called the, the coal compromise. So there, there was an agreement reached between unions, NGOs, government, coal companies, and so forth to exit coal, um, by 2038 at the latest. But 2035 is kind of like the provis provisional target date. And he really wants to stick with that. He says it's, uh, there's no need to bring it forward. Even though if you take Germany's commitments to, to the Paris agreement seriously, you would have to bring it forward to 2030 at, at the latest. Yeah. So he, 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 he's engaging in this kind of double speak pretty much. And also, um, so the, the politics around the car industry in Germany is, is another area where that can get pretty dicey where, you know, there's a lot of skepticism towards, um, a, transitioning towards electric cars, but then also trans transitioning towards other forms of mobility, you know, that don't rely on everybody owning a personal vehicle in the first place. Um, I think also on the left, sometimes there's a little bit of weird discourse around that where people are just, you know, they're very dead set against electric cars and kind of parrot some of the talking points of the right when it comes to, you know, feasibility and impact and so forth. I think both are important. We're, we're probably in a country like Germany, but especially also in a country like the US where you have these suburbs that were built around car ownership and so forth. You're never going to probably going to get completely rid of personal cars. So um, I think people should should be open-minded and keep several options open. But basically, in, in practice, you always see Laschet and you often see the German government and the CDU in particular on the European level as a, you know, as, as wanting to delay climate action. They were quite, quite skeptical and, you know, urging caution when adopting these new um, climate targets. Some of that is because they speak for their donors in the car industry. Um, some of that is there's still, you know, a lot of cultural attachment to kind of, you know, like, yes, we want change, but, but not too quickly. And also feeling that they don't want to overwhelm voters. Yeah. So it, this is kind of like the line that they go with rather than, you know, doubling down making state-led investment and really ensuring that, you know, there's a, even from a sort of narrow nationalistic point of view, it would make sense to to promote industry that has attractive products that, that are still going to be demand for in the future. But they don't see it that way because, yeah, Germany is an aging country. A lot of voters, they're worried about climate change. They're supportive of climate action, but at the same time, they don't want too much change too quickly. And that is kind of the sweet spot that the conservatives are aiming for. And I, I really, I fear and I think that it's going to be quite successful because that's, that's what sounds reasonable to people. And, you know, you have to, the far right on the one end, being outright climate denialists and, you know, writing a policy 
platform that is inclusively designed to trigger the libs and then you have you know the crazy greens and the crazy left screaming about the climate crisis on the other end and you have you know the reasonable conservatives in the middle who who take it seriously but you know who's going to do one step at a time and you know let's let's make sure everybody is on board and so forth so right and this i mean it's gotten to the point now where where i regard you know incrementalism as as it might as well be denialism right i mean it's it's such a crisis now that it's it's almost it's almost more insidious because you can point to the afd party platform and say like okay like you said it's just triggering the libs it's just it's ridiculous it's not going to be implemented um but then this it's this like presenting this very like reasonable thing of like oh no no we we like you said take it seriously but you know we need to get there slowly and do it deliberatively and not be like these you know crazy leftist radicals and it's like there's just isn't time for that and it's so nefarious because it gets it wins over the people that want to be reasonable but it doesn't address the crisis at all yeah exactly i, I want to maybe sort of qualify that a little bit by saying sometimes i do see an element of voluntarism on the left associated with climate politics that is, in my view, a little bit problematic and not really warranted, where people just engage in this kind of, on the one hand, voluntarism around technology that, you know, we're going to, it's somehow straightforward to determine sort of genuine human needs from just, you know, consumption desires that are induced by capital, which I think is, if that's a practical philosophical problem at all, it's very, very tricky. And also just, I think there's sometimes a, a disinterest in kind of technological questions paired with this kind of, you know, technological manichaeanism that we've seen really with, with the politics around um, nuclear energy in Germany. Like there's this uh, famous saying that, you know, technology is uh, neither good nor bad nor neutral. And I think people should take that a little bit more seriously. Um, it is true that we're making pretty much half of our energy slightly less from renewable sources now. That includes biomass, which is by no means a climate neutral technology. It is in some ways advantageous over, over coal and gas, but really not by all that much. I, I really want to urge people on the left to, to take these tricky technological questions seriously, because it's, it's just not true that we're going to beat climate change just with inoffensive solar panels that are somehow have zero environmental impact and right. you know nobody nobody has to take any sort of tricky compromises it, it, this this kind of very black and white thinking when it comes to particular technologies i think is is also problematic yeah i think i think there's like a skepticism of these sort of people discussing technology as like a panacea because it's it's sometimes used as a bit of like a, a soft denialism of like the technology will figure yeah. it out like don't worry about it and so people are, are rightly skeptical of that as like a cure-all but at the same time yeah like you said it you're not probably not going to get there without some degree yeah. of new technology. so i think it's yeah I'm, I'm i mean i, I what i want to say is like i think as socialists we should be steadfast in our sort of poor ethical commitments so people have you know, equal rights and equal dignity. It's work and the working class that creates wealth and we are collectively entitled to that wealth. I think we should treat questions around 
technology um, and, and, and growth and so forth and consumption with the appropriate respect and with the appropriate, you know, like just acknowledge the complexities that are there, both technical complexities, but also, you know, social complexities and so forth. And let's not make every technological question into a culture war issue that the German left made renewable energy into. I think that's really unhelpful. I think we should be stridently defensive of our core ethical commitments as socialists, but I think we should allow ourselves to be pragmatic when, when it comes to, you know, how, how do we implement them on a, on a technological level? And, um, it's, it's okay not to be interested in technology. Um, I, I completely respect that. But, you know, we need, we also need some people who want to get into the nitty gritties and who want to figure out the details. Right. Yeah. And so I guess that, that leads us nicely just to, just to close out in terms of looking ahead and the, the best hope for, for really avoiding, avoiding the worst. I mean, we're already seeing obviously devastating consequences of climate change already and that's that's not going to get any better in the future but you mentioned these sort of different approaches to addressing the crisis and how they need to work together i mean what is the greatest hope here what should people kind of concentrate their effort on is that you know hoping for a red red green coalition in the fall is that more like mass mobilization to demand a, a just transition is that this more technological approach and really like you said getting into the nitty-gritty or um, i assume all you know probably some of all three but how would those work together and how do you how do you see the next few years in an optimistic case i think what would clearly be bad is if there's an outright conservative government. I think we can, it's pretty clear, um, because particularly when it comes to European policy, Germany is really going to step on the brakes and, um, try to, you know, engineer a compromise on a European level that really puts the brakes on European climate policy. Particularly when it comes to the car industry, I think Germany has there's still real economic interests. Um, so I think an, an outright conservative government composed of CDU and FDP would be bad. There is, you know, some polls are suggesting that it's perhaps, you know, it's it's an outside possibility. It's not necessarily all that likely. Um, I think we're going to more likely see some sort of divided government between the center right and the center left, and um, there it's really important to continue to exercise pressure on them you know if it's the greens or the spd at the end of the day um, there has to be a credible left opposition to them that develops its own climate policy and, and holds them to account um, i think it's going to be particularly important because that role has so far um, to some extent been filled up by the greens and if the Greens go into government now, then really, you know, the Die Linke and the SPD have to step out their climate game and, and team up with civil society uh, in and, and climate movements in a stronger way than to date. But I also, th I, I think it's, it, it, it comes down again. I think the, the climate policy of Die Linke isn't registering right now. I saw a poll that like asked voters, which party do you trust most to solve climate issues? And I think the link I got one or two percent. So people are not 
registering that there is a distinct socialist climate policy that's coming from the left. It's having people still kind of associate them with the like coal industry in the east yeah, I or think, something as being like a bit beholden to, to those though, interests. I think right? that's probably over. I think also I think there's a lot of kind of climate policy coming out of the left that is you know is developed with within activist circles very very well meaning very comprehensive in a way but that also it has its own way of avoiding tricky questions and is is also not presented in a way where it really registers outside of of a particular left milieu and i think that's very very problematic i think delinke is really on the verge of losing contact with mainstream society um as not just in climate issues but as a whole and it needs to really seriously think how it can sell a credible alternative to just you know continued centrist same old same old governance that this country has seen for decades now i mean we've we've seen these amazing mobilizations by civil society and you know by by students striking and so forth and really when it comes to climate policy i think a renewed effort like that is really needed to move the establishment in the right direction. Yeah, so more on the mass kind of social mobilization than the than the electoral side. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, that's not a not an optimistic place to leave it, I guess. But I mean, it's uh, false. I think false optimism for the climate crisis is uh, is its own nefarious thing that that unfortunately people try to gloss over some of the the hard trade offs and the hard realities. So I I definitely don't want to do this do that on this podcast yeah. and I, I appreciate your your candor with all of this um do you have anything else to add or no i mean i think that's that's a good place to to leave it i mean just to reiterate that a little bit i th- I would encourage people to not fall into either extreme you know don't don't become an extreme pessimist don't don't just you know fall into complete gloom and doom because there is interesting things happening in the technological space, in the social space, in the political space, there there are things afoot. And depending on, you know, your talents, your interests and so forth, there's places to to get involved and, and make stuff happen. But there's there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of ground still to cover. So don't don't become a complete optimist, don't become a complete pessimist. And yes, st- stay realistic and attentive to the details. I think at some point the left is going to also have to face up to the question that emissions cuts by itself is probably going to be insufficient to stabilize the climate and we're going to be faced with the question of negative emissions um, and how do you do that sustainably and, and in an equitable way, in a fair way that you know profits the global working class and, and improves their situation in life and it's not just another scheme of neocolonial domination i think these questions are really really important and it's important to uh face them with an international viewpoint and and as an international left really but um yeah i think you know shy away from from simple slogans and easy answers and but don't fall into complete despair that's that's what i would urge every socialist to do at this point and everybody else who's interested in in climate questions. Well, yeah, thanks. That's really nicely said.
Thanks a lot. No problem. It was a pleasure. Um, and where can people find your writing? Um, just Jacobin. I have this was my first piece for the English edition, but I have quite a few stuff in the in the German language edition. That's Jacobin.de, and yeah, you can find everything that I write, and it's just one Google Translate link away from reading it if you don't speak German. So. Well, that's perfect. Yeah, definitely, definitely recommend doing that. Um, Alex Brentler, thanks a lot for joining. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That was such a great and really eye-opening conversation. So thanks a lot to Alex for coming on the podcast. We did want to conclude with a reading of an article that's closely related but provides a little more levity. This is an article in Deutsche Welle online, which is Deutsche Welle's Germany's premier international broadcaster. And it's written by their science editor, Fabian Schmidt. And this is an opinion piece from July 19th titled, Germany's know-it-all attitude after the floods helps no one. Michelle, you want to take us through? All right. Starting with the subheading, hindsight is a wonderful thing, but accusing politicians and disaster management officials of, quote, system failure underestimates the forces of nature. DW's Fabian Schmidt writes. Right, so we can kind of see where he's going, right? He's uh, he's basically doing the McArdle, um, where she famously, after the 2017 Grenfell tragedy and the fire there, she was like, well, you know, we can't really invest in more safety because who knows it'll, if it'll help. And uh, DW science editor seems to be picking up in a similar vein of who, who could have warned people, who could have told them to evacuate? You know, you never know. It's just nature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely not the government could have warned people. Jesus Christ. All right, should we jump in? Yeah, go for it. All right. It's all too human to look for someone to blame after a huge natural disaster, but that doesn't help anyone. Certainly not the victims, the survivors, or the people whose livelihoods were washed away by the masses of water within minutes. Okay, so not only can we not do anything to fight climate change, but we can't even tell people to evacuate and to try to mitigate some of the catastrophes that come from that because you know hindsight's 2020 right you know we can't we can't try to improve disaster management because that doesn't help the victims now and so i guess next time just we're going to keep saying this every time there's flooding or a fire don't really know where this logic leads gonna keep going here this know-it-all attitude gets on my nerves just like Germany has 80 million football coaches after the national team loses a game, now everyone seems to be a disaster relief expert. Sorry. That's just so insane. The disaster relief expert says, uh, please get out of giant once-in-a-millennia floods. Yeah, this is, requires real expert knowledge to know that. Continuing here. And not just in Germany. The British hydrologist Hannah Cloak argued in the British newspaper The Sunday Times and later on German public broadcaster ZDF that the warnings of the European Flood Awareness System, EFAS, had not reached the people in Germany in time. Yeah, they didn't. That's objectively <laughs> true. Like, people didn't know that they needed to get out of there, even though there were reports. This was actually good journalism from the Times, which, you know, you hate to give them credit. But, like, they, they were right on this, that, like, people didn't get the warnings, they didn't know what to do, and they didn't evacuate in time. So a lot of people died. Back to Schmidt. This, she said, was a, quote, monumental system failure. 
Michael Theura, Deputy Parliamentary Group Chairman of the Pro-Market-Free Democrats, joined in and said that Interior Minister Hwas Zihufa bore, quote, direct personal responsibility for this. Granted, we are in the midst of election campaigning, but the claim is simply not true. Yeah, this is one of those worst person you know made a great point things where I, I, I hate to be on the side of the, the Times and the FTP, but, uh, but here you go. German public broadcaster VDR 5, for example, had aired the following message at 8 a.m. last Tuesday, more than 24 hours before the disaster struck. Quote, the German weather service warns of severe thunderstorms with heavy rain, in some areas extremely heavy rain. Locally, hail, high water, and flooding must be expected, end quote. Anyone who had been following the weather report could guess what was coming. Those who had also followed the precipitation radar. <laughs> yeah, those of us up on the precipitation radar. What the hell? Okay, sorry. I'm going to read that sentence again. Those who had also followed the precipitation radar or simply looked out the window knew it all the more. It's just this is like one of the most insane things I've read in a while. Like as if anyone like like you have your like Doppler radar going in a country where like old people like don't have Internet or looking out the window. Like when is the last time you look out the window and are like that rain is nuts? Like I definitely there's going to be a car washing down the middle of the street and the street's going to be a river in like an hour. Like. What is, this is a science editor. Like, what is he talking about? He also just made fun of the fact that now everybody is a disaster relief expert. And then two sentences <laughs> later is like, why isn't everybody a disaster relief looking at yeah. their radars? Yeah, exactly. What? what are you doing, man? Okay, here we have quite the subheading. Warning systems only go so far. What no one could have known and what no one could have prepared for were the flash floods in places such as Schultz on the Ah River in Rheinland. Why did I'm sorry? <laughs> That's the ugliest English translation of a German state. Rheinland Pfalz sounds yeah. way better. Pal- Palatinate. Rhineland Palatinate. Okay. There are quite simply forces of nature that are so unpredictable that we cannot forecast their devastating power, even with all the advanced engineering and technology at our disposal, and neither can EFAS. Early warning systems can alert us to relatively slowly rising floodwaters, but not to the rapid torrents we saw last week. Our centuries of experience with floods are, by human standards, the yardstick for flood protection and for where housing construction is allowed in the first place. Okay, so again, <laughs> this is just wild stuff, like, keeps going back and forth. So it's up to, like, Oma to like check the radar and look out the window and know that there's a flood coming but literally the European agency whose job it is to do this couldn't possibly know so like either this is intuitive and obvious and you don't need an evacuation notice because everyone should have known it anyway or oh, any kind of warning is useless and no one could have possibly known what was happening but like you can't it can't be both in should on the other hand centuries-old timber-framed houses that had survived many previous floods were washed away. Bridges were destroyed that had been built and renewed in recent decades to the best of our knowledge and belief, taking into account possible floods. Continuing, subheading, even the best flood protection reaches its limits. 
The argument that river straightening, canalization, and soil sealing are responsible for the catastrophe is not true in the case of the R. The R is a river with few obstructions that largely follow its natural course. Likewise, the extent of the disaster in the town of Erftstadt in Nordrhein-Westfalen could not have been predicted, neither by the disaster control experts nor by the inhabitants. I thought everyone knew what was coming. He literally said everyone knew what was coming, but it could never be predicted. Quite the roller coaster here. Continuing. There, a river had first flooded a gravel pit in short time and then softened it to such an extent that parts of an adjacent village were literally swallowed up by it. The legacy of the former lignite, lignite surface mining area in the Rhineland region, which had been heavily dug up over thousands of years. I expect this won't be the last disaster of its kind there. Oh, he's an expert again. <laughs> expert hat on, expert mode engaged. Okay, another subheading here. Don't rely solely on electronic gadgets. Yes, the gadgets known as like warning notifications, which exist on your phones. Like we've had that forever. Like I was in Romania hiking and there was a bear like two miles away in a village. And I got this like giant alert on my phone, like my whole phone going off and like vibrating in this like noticed in Romanian that that there was a bear. Like they can notify you when you're hiking with a, like a foreign number. Like it's still they still find a way to reach you and tell you about a bear. And you can't in Germany, you don't even get notified to evacuate when there's these insane floods that killed a couple hundred people. Like this isn't a gadget. This is like infrastructure and technology that we have in a lot of countries for a long time. He makes it sound like some newfangled thing. The word gadget is insane. Let's keep reading. There is also criticism of the sometimes late and contradictory warnings from public warning apps such as Catwarn or Nina. K-A-T-W-A-R-N, or Nina. Detractors argue that these apps prompted people to stay at home rather than flee the floods, and they say that the recommended evacuation area was too narrow. In addition, the apps failed when the power failed. I love to have emergency apps that don't work during an emergency. That's, that's pretty cool. But an app can't know where exactly a house will be destroyed by the floods. Perhaps those responsible can even learn from this crisis and improve the apps even further. That's all we do is improve apps as a society. It's the only option. <laughs> Germany, well known for improving apps. That's uh, definitely a national strength here, so I'm sure that'll go well. Back to the piece. But the most important lesson we can take away from this is that we shouldn't rely primarily on flashy new digital toys in severe weather situations. Instead, we should use all of our senses and our common sense. Again, okay, now it's <laughs> now now it's every every man and woman for himself again. So, like I just have complete whiplash here. I think he's gone back like four or five times. Like this is this whole thing is just like a you you can't get mad at me like the status quo is fine like he seems like he's running interference for the cdu like armin nasha the chancellor candidate for the cdu is the minister president of northern westfalen where a lot of the worst of this catastrophe happened and and has you know handled this quite poorly as we talked about in the interview and this seems like just just totally running interference for him and saying, you know, you can't get mad no matter what happened, both in terms of the response and the actual physical infrastructure to try to prevent this in the first place. So it's like if the measures 
to actually mitigate the physical damage, those can't work. The warning systems can't work. Like, it's just a total free for all out there. Like, well, what's the what's the takeaway from this? Like, what's the logic here? All the Omis and Opies are supposed to stick their hand outside, see if it's raining, and realize that their like 18th century house is gonna wash away. What? It's so insane. Okay, let's keep going. And sometimes it might not be a bad idea to stick with proven analog technology, such as the former telephone network, which would have continued to function even in the event of a power outage, in contrast to voice over IP. Subheading, who will be hit by the next disaster? Following reconstruction, the people on the R River will certainly also benefit from a much improved early warning system. But the next deadly floods may hit a completely different river and village, which is not as well prepared. For example, somewhere in the Thuringen Forest, the Hatz Mountains, or the Alps. It's unpredictable, and that is the nature of things. Right, and so we wouldn't want to just make there be good warning systems everywhere. Like, because, okay, the place that got hit is now going to do a warning, but it might happen anywhere, so we can't prevent it. Like, the logical solution is just to make the systems good in all of Germany and throughout Europe and the entire world. Like, flooding is a huge problem in massive parts of the global south as well, so we don't act like we're just ignoring that. But this Germany-specific thing, like a wealthy country that should be able to handle this, and he's just throwing his hands up in the air and saying, like, who knows? Who knows where it could happen? Like, we can't, we can't prevent it. The bitter truth remains there are simply forces of nature that are stronger than us and that strike so quickly that not even the best early warning system in the world can predict them. So what can we do? In terms of architecture and urban planning, we have to learn from past experience, hoping to mitigate the damage next time and simply accept that playing the blame game won't help. Okay, so... 200 people dead and it's nobody's fault what are you gonna do you can't stop it uh, it's just it's just the way it goes that is the forward-looking science editor uh, so so look forward to climate catastrophe getting worse and everyone just saying we can't we can't help you nothing we can do that's a it's a great great message going forward that was just so rough <laughs> I, I can't believe this was written and published and this is not even like some crank that like got a got a one-off op-ed like this is this is the science editor of like a very prestigious news outlet in germany so there you go um it's so funny titling it germany's know-it-all attitude and it's like just this guy's know-it-all attitude <laughs> or like no nothing attitude but also know-it-all like it, it, it's wild it's all over the place Anyway, that's, uh, that's what we have for you this week. We'll look forward to next Friday when we will have episode two of our reunification series where we get into the details of the Troyhand. And then number three will be a week after that with a special guest. So look forward to that. Michelle, you have anything else? That's it for me. Cheers. Thanks a lot for joining. Cheers.